My name is Cupid Valentino, the modern day Cupid, and I just want to say one thing, happy Valentine's Day. Say happy Valentine's Day. Every day the Can you dig that? Happy Valentine's Day. It is Sunday at 12 p.m. or maybe a little bit after. This is the Heritage Radio Network, and you are listening to the main course. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Kiefer. I'm the other one. Patrick Martins. <laughs> and uh, we have a great show lined up. We have um, some facts and fantasies about Valentine's Day. Uh, we have um, Colin, what's your last name? Colin Colin Olivers. Colin Olivers is joining us uh, late of DBGBs and now of Momofuku. Um, he's going to be telling us about beer. We have uh, a whole sort of sampler of the great beers served by Roberta's Restaurant here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, from whence we broadcast. We're doing five, one, two, three, four, five beers. And then uh, the one that we like the best, uh, we'll drink as much of as we possibly can in the next hour and 45 minutes. Sharing glasses. Uh, I want to give a shout out to my boys in the booth, Jack Inslee, producer. <laughs> Nat Wiener. <laughs> they were like, we don't need sound effects. You they heard the show. We didn't get guys. one minute into the show. Before. You are too funny. You That's guys are beautiful. like a hawk. Yeah. Nat, or, what or was an your... Eagle. What's your... Thank you. That's better. All right. So, um... Should we just give a little chat? I, I did actually put together some interesting uh, facts about Valentine's Day for, okay. uh, for this. So I thought um, I would share uh, with you and the other three people who listen um, just why it is we celebrate Valentine's Day, which okay. originally was, as you might have already suspected, uh, based on a Roman fertility festival. Interesting. Yep. Uh, it was the Lupercalian Festival, um, and it was named after uh, Lupa, which, of course, is the wolf who uh, suckled Romus, Romulus and Remus, uh, who established Rome mm-hmm. way back when. Um, and and the, this festival was observed between February 13th and 15th. But my favorite part about this festival, which... Um, is the reason that I kept this clip. And this means a lot coming from you because you were there from the first one. So <laughs> Exactly. I, I've seen them all. And, and I want to tell you that, that, that the really best part about it was that they would, um, they would sacrifice a goat and a dog. And then the boys, Romulus and Remus, would take uh, strips of the goat hide, dip them in the sacrificial blood, and then they would walk around town slapping women on the rump with the bloody goat strips. And I thought, yeah, that's a ritual that needs revival. (laughs) (laughs) I think Tom Milan, if you're listening, (laughs) you could make that happen for us. Um, But it was was also a time when... um, the men would throw the women would throw all their names in a pot. Men would pick them out, and then they would sort of uh, date that woman for a year. And many marriages were uh, were affected because of that. But um, uh, subsequently, I think around uh, the fourth century, uh, the Pope Gelasius one actually fifth century four ninety six um, he outlawed this uh, because it was uh, just too anti Christian mm. to have people fornicating before marriage and so uh, but, um, buzz kill that they are those Catholics he uh, he he said no more of that 
Well, well it does make nonsense. sense when this festival is because it's a it's a sex festival basically after the winter. So if you survive yeah. the winter, right. you made it. You got to the other side, you know, eating that last piece of brisket and cabbage, and then uh, you have. A, <laughs> and actually, the next Roman date, you know, which one it is? The big Roman, you know, they used to define uh, the year by. There were like 10 or 12 days that were important, and all the other days in the middle were just days in the middle. They were just days. It's the Ides of March. Oh, of course. Which was which is a the very settling, big deal for you. Of, uh, settling of debts is what uh-huh. happened. So if you survived the winter, first you had a few more kids, then you settled your debts, <laughs> yeah. you know, because if you were going to die, yeah, like many that's people right. did back then. Absolutely. Well, it's also true, um, and we'll talk about the Ides of March more because something very important is happening with your business on the Ides of March. But um, you wear the Ides of March, I guess. Big Patrick. industries, yeah, corporations. That's right. Um, but uh, there were many early Christian martyrs named Valentine, um, and uh, Valentine. Uh, in fact, his one of the Valentines, Valentine of Rome. Uh, was martyred in 269, and his relics, in case you are interested in reliquaries, uh, are established at the Church of St. Praxed in Rome and at the White Friar Street Carmelite Church in Dublin. Um, do you guys, are you all hip to reliquaries? Does everybody else have the reliquary fetish that I have? Absolutely. Yeah. The Met has a Colin pretty good... Colin will take a pilgrimage with you any day. Yeah, the Met has actually quite a nice collection. Um, they don't have many which still boast their little bits of bone or rag, which is my favorite part. It's gotten um, sexier. But they, still, um, but they still have like the rock crystal window into the tiny chamber in which they would, you know, put a fragment of the true cross Jesus. or a little... Chamber, bone, yeah. this is going on. Bone and, on and rag, rag and bone. Valentine's Day. Uh, yeah. So anyway, there were many Valentine's. Uh, some of them c- continued to perform marriages when they weren't supposed to, and that I think is the one who was um, become associated with with the holiday. Uh, he was martyred because of his desire to unite people, in spite of um, whatever stricture there was against it. Um, Chaucer wrote about it. Uh, well, th- that guy that outlawed it, he was probably the first uh, step Gilesius. towards the founding of hallmark as an organization you know, I went from actually having sex <laughs> i did actually to- get the information it was um in our country uh, well it was valentine's were very popular in in england but then in our country they are and there was a woman uh, i'll try to find her name but there were also things called vinegar valentines anybody hear of those before vinegar valentines were things that you sent to people you didn't like mm. that and- was sponsored by mass and gill yeah <laughs> <laughs> And, um, hey, take it easy there, buddy. Got a cat on my lap who's, like, really enjoying this. And uh, vinegar valentines were sent to people like spinsters, floozies, dudes. What was a dude in 1900? I don't know. And scholars. It was like uh, Oscar Wilde. Unmarried men of the sporting life. That's a nice way of saying it. Did they have a cocktail named after them? Uh, The cocktails are all named after them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Jim Patrick, you are such a cheap date for stuff like that. <laughs> um, but the first mass-produced Valentines uh, were sold, produced and sold shortly after 1847 by Esther Howland of Worcester, Massachusetts. And um, she took her inspiration from an English Valentine she had received 
and then began because her father operated a stationery store. She started mass producing them. So that's that's where they they came from in this country. Okay. And um, well, thanks, Katie. Yeah, I think I'm I think I'm done with this. Right. Thank God. I there can tell gonna... you're done. <laughs> there is currently a uh, nice little exhibition of uh, 18th and 19th century Valentines hmm. up at the uh, Museum for the City of New York right now. Oh, really? You're kidding. I was just there a couple of weeks ago. Now, Katie, did I saw you the celebrate Valentine's? I haven't celebrated it yet, but I, I certainly will be later this evening. Oh, I'm saying, but I mean, in general, was that a meaningful holiday to you? You know, no, mm-hmm. frankly. I mean, when I was little, the thing that I really liked was I loved the little cards. And even to this day, I love those old-fashioned cards from the 50s and 60s. Um, and I really like, I used to collect like the ones from, you know, the 20s. <laughs> The teens and twenties. When you go into, you used to be able to find that kind of ephemera and like crappy, uh, you know, junk stores and stuff. It's not so easy to find them now. But I see that you have something well, important no, maybe, to read uh, to us. Maybe from we Lincoln. should come. I mean, later in the broadcast, stay tuned. I'm going to read um, a, a little paragraph from a speech that Abraham Lincoln wrote in 1857 that he talked in an address to the Wisconsin State Agricultural Society. It was actually in 1859, right before he became president. And, um, you know, he was speaking back in a time when farmers were the most numerous class in America. Like, what they needed uh, is what happened. So uh, that'll be kind of cool, I'm sure small farms and actually that'll uh, be great come up later i brought some information in about katie Couric's uh two-part segment uh series on um antibiotic use in animal husbandry okay we should and, talk about um, that and too. also a piece that i picked up um from somewhere about farm subsidies which is another big part of the agricultural piece of the puzzle that i don't think people really think about all that much so or valentine's to uh corporate farming that's right <laughs> So why don't that? And then we're also going to taste uh, four beers. Um, a yeah, Belgian we didn't drag style. this like really hot looking guy calling out here in his Vivian Westwood pants and his red boots with yellow laces out here for nothing. Yeah, we're going to talk beverage direction and all that. And we're yeah. actually going to taste the five beers that anyone could taste if they came to Roberta's. That's right. So um, before you come, listen to this 20 minute breakdown on each beer. No, it won't be that much. (laughs) But uh, why don't uh, we take a break and we'll come back with Colin Olivres. We're back at the uh, main course, if it's Sunday. It's the main course. I still don't think that really sounds like thunder and lightning. Sounds like bacon in a frying pan. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, like it a- sounds like uh, distant <laughs> warfare. Oh, geez. Now they're just... Someone okay. back there? It's, is, who unleashed the sound effect thing? Jack, I thought we were <laughs> done with that. So um, Never. we're with... Um, we're sponsored by Hearst Ranch. Hearst is one of the best beef, uh, grass, 100% grass-fed beef companies in the country. Hearst.com. Thanks to uh, the Hearsts for sponsoring today's show. Um, and our guest is Colin Olivres, uh, former beverage director at uh, DBGB's, uh, Daniel Balud's restaurant on Bowery and First. And now he's about to become the beverage director of... Um, the Mamafuku Empire, which is a very so. What interesting restaurant position. are you going to work in, Colin? Or are you going to be like going my, around to all of them to sort of revamp? Well, right their- now my primary focus is uh, getting Ma Pesh open, which is going to be in the Chambers Hotel on fifty six between fifth and sixth. Yep. And that tin is the uh, going to be overseeing the kitchen there, right? And he was uh, one of basically the founding energies of Sambar. Yes, Tianho will be the executive chef, and uh, yes, Sam Gelman. Is uh, executive sous chef, and you worked with these these guys before, right? No, I just known them from restaurant business and oh. being around. Mm-hmm. And of course, Colin is of uh, you know the founder of the Tasting Room, which will always be remembered as one of the great restaurants ever in New York. Actually, I used I did to not love going. That. Everything yeah. made themselves from the cocktails to the food. I mean, Fabulous. all local ingredients. Talking about local ingredients, we are going to have a common thread go around of, of tasting the beers of Roberta's today and hearing Colin's honest opinion. So let's just yeah. get the first one out of the way. It's. Uh, Fish, which is an amber lager from Gloucester, Mass., yes. from Cape Ann Brewing Company. Yeah, the Fisherman's Brew. This is um, an amber lager, very much produced in the classic uh, American beer tradition. Um, so this is a sort of craft version of what most people would perceive as normal beer. Um, it's nice, um, just to point out, there's two big divisions in the beer world, um, lagers and ales. And lagers are bottom fermenting at colder temperatures. Ales are top fermenting at warmer temperatures. And pretty much before the 1800s, everything was an ale. Um, Mm -hmm. And with all lagers, after they're produced, they need to age and mature for a little while. Um, Which is why, interestingly enough, a lot of craft brewers um, and small upstart companies don't produce lager um, because you need to age it. And most companies need cash flow, so they don't want to sit on top of inventory. Which is a problem for cheesemakers. I mean, it's a problem for a bunch of Yeah, I mean, industries. with an ale, once it's done fermenting, it's ready to go. You can age them, but you don't need to. With a lager, you really need to age it. Lagering is the sort of German word for cellaring. So it, it's, by its very nature, um, is aged somewhat. For how long? Um, it varies. I mean, it can be anywhere between, you know, 30 days and a year. And what, how would you define the taste profile of something between 30 days and a year? What happens to the actual molecules or taste? Um, they mellow. It's sort of like aging wine. Mm -hmm. You know, it's certainly right out of the fermenter. Um, it's going to have a slightly raw, extra bitter taste. Um, Mm -hmm. it's somewhat disjointed. Um, there's a lot of different byproducts of fermentation that haven't quite settled into their happy homes. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're just not that pleasant to drink. Um, so they need time to sort of relax as well as clarify. For the uh, modern day kids, I always describe it. It's like a, 
a joystick. You know, when you first get a joystick for the old arcade games, it'd be tough and, you know, you couldn't really move. And then right before it was about to break, it had that perfect thing where you could set all the high scoring records, you know, because you had that thing. But it was loose as a result, you know, and barely holding itself uh, together. Because after too long, it'll start to taste bad in the other direction, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's also a fair amount of risk with aging beer. Um, a lot of things can go wrong during that time. You can have bacterial infections, secondary fermentations. Um, things can go bad. But um, with the Fisherman's Brew, it's nice because it's an all-barley malt beer. Um, most uh, mass-market lagers use what we would refer to as adjuncts, um, which is sort of anything you're going to ferment besides barley. Um, so things like Budweiser and Coors and Corona mm-hmm. um, often use less expensive grains to bolster alcohol content. That's why they contain rice and corn. Mm. Um, Which is not supposed to be in beer, right? Corn? Not really, Mm -hmm. um, unless you want to make it cheaper. You know, it has nothing to do with promoting flavor. Rice um, and corn can also be used to sort of uh, thin down the texture um, to make uh, what, uh, encourage what, let's say, Budweiser would refer to as drinkability. um, Is that a word? It is to them. I think, I think the, I think the definition word, of drinkability would also be um, flavorlessness. Um, <laughs> That's um, true. You know, and sort of it's there. It's like gushability. It's like a yeah. downability is what exactly, they call it. Because uh, there's nothing there. Um, well, describe this to us. I mean, taste this beer. And I mean, how does it differ from, you know, when someone's like, oh, I like artisanal beers, craft brews. I don't like Budweiser. Help give them almost the vocabulary of what you would say is, in real English words, the difference between um, this and course. Well, one of the things that's most um, notable is there's a, a definite bit of sort of fresh hop aroma to the beer, um, which provides both flavor and bitterness. Uh, hops originally added um, as a preservative. It's a powerful uh, antibacterial, antimicrobial Who agent. Because most beers prior to this were uh, somewhat sour because they didn't have the protection um, or refrigeration. Um, what's nice about this is you get a balance between hops and a little bit of malt. You can taste some graininess to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the barley that's using, you know, all barley instead of sometimes with uh, mass market beers, you'll detect a certain amount of, let's say, a lot of people call it like cream corn kind of aroma to it mm-hmm. um it's a very thin you know watery this has a certain texture to it that's also from uh the barley that doesn't get sort of washed out with uh adjunct grain mm-hmm. um so it's nice it's sort of mouth filling it's somewhat just a hint of bitterness it's very approachable it is bitter i mean that's what i think keeps it from the quote-unquote drinkability or downability or for that's being right. a seven day a week this. every week thing you know um can Whereas i cores yeah. could can i interject one question there in england they sell bitter yeah so what's that bitter um in english terms um really refers to ale that's got some hops in it to the extent that it's noticeable um an english bitter um it still isn't bitter you know, Europeans somehow have devised a culture that's not afraid of the word bitter, where here everything, when people yes. hear the word bitter, it's a negative. It's a real yeah. negative, it's a bitter pill. You know, it's not something you would ever 
it's one of those things you have to tell waiters like don't say bitter at the table yeah um you know even with wine if yeah, it's bitter it's you don't want to refer to now wait <laughs> bitters if i recall correctly was a seminal ingredient in cocktail history culture right it turned one type of cocktail into another sure yes. like angostura well, bitters or peixos bitters yeah but well, what didn't it turn it from a, a well, punch to a something well we got from a punch to individual cocktails um by varying means as as the tavern evolved um but yes bitters um aromatic bitters um as a sort of health tonic um as they first appeared i believe it in the 1790s in new orleans with anton peixot there were other companies producing bitters um and they're definitely an offshoot of the patent medicine business isn't that funny um, but well, they, they were before, developed initially as digestives. Digestive. Yeah, well, I mean, they I were mean, developed by monks, right? They were just liquor. Well, <laughs> that they, no, it they was a way um, attributes to you know certain things. Um, <laughs> oil of clove is an antiseptic. You know, yeah. oil of cinnamon is an antimicrobial. Um, so it was a way to get um, certain benefits from plant extracts um, mm-hmm. yeah. in a way that was otherwise inconvenient. Um, but well, yeah, the, the addition of bitters to what used to be called um, a sling, mm-hmm, right. which was basically um, brandy and water, um, a bittered sling was and sugar. So now once you add bitters um, to sugar and brandy, um, you have a drink now known as the old fashioned. Um, but this is the original cocktail. All the way cocktail. to sex on the beach. that's made bourbon now. You can well... Nowadays, when you say an old-fashioned, it's sort of shorthand for an old-fashioned whiskey cocktail. Ah. But before, it would have been brandy, um, uh-huh. which would have been probably cognac, maybe not. Um, then as local um, distilling took into effect, um, most often probably would have been made with rye. Um, now it's bourbon, mm-hmm. um, rye being uh, somewhat rare post-Prohibition and post-World War II. It was... Uh, just not that effective to grow rye. Um, so we're seeing a resurgence in rye now, but... Yeah, there's a whole new rye bar. My friend Catherine was telling me about it. Really? Fifth Avenue. Yeah, I think it's called the Rye Bar. Yeah. And it's uh, devoted to rye whiskey. All these in m- many different people forms. from the Midwest who come to New York to eat raw bar, and then they end up at the Rye Bar <laughs> and have to get their stomach pumped. But Could be uh, worse. Yeah, Jack, that's an interesting tag, though. Um, bitters turns the sling into an the, old before fashion. it was really an old fashioned. That's a his well. It was actually moment. just called a cocktail. Cocktail. And a cocktail okay. was one thing before it became a class of of beverages. Drinks. You um, got that, Jack? Jack. So that Jack, a, is Jack there. You had anymore? a sling, then you had a bittered sling. Then that became known as the cocktail. Yeah. Um, Our parents drank old fashions. Yeah. Well, you know, it's quite a good drink. Why is the Negroni yes. so well respected amongst uh, bar, um, I mean, barmen? Isn't that always considered a great drink? Like, what makes it drink? Uh, I mean, the combination of, uh, you know, Campari, gin, and vermouth, it's just a... Uh, they're all bitter. Speaking of bitter. They're yeah. all bitter, but, you know, there's a particular... I think sophistication. It's very much the uh, acquired. It's an acquired taste, but a somewhat easily acquired taste. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because it's distinct, you can't bastardize a Negroni the way you can uh, the word mm. martini. Right. Um, right. Yeah. 
which is really, really a shame. I mean, in Italy, a martini is uh, comes in martini a little glass Rossi. jar, and you know, yeah. it's, it's like vermouth a wine cooler. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, properly made martini is a beautiful thing, and then there's all those other horrible pretenders. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, back to the beer. Well, yeah, and I want to ask one more question about cocktails, and then we'll come. The a great barman. Um, if if you trust a great barman, you can mention your liquor of choice and a kind of general flavor or juice, and leave it to them to then come up with a concoction that meets those two. I mean, isn't that you just have, kind of want something citrusy with gin, and then they that kind of like is like telling a chef, you know, I'll do the tasting menu. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there's certainly a wealth of um, established drinks to go with that. Um, but yeah, you know, creating a drink for a customer or customizing a drink um, to a particular taste is certainly uh, a skill that should be, uh, how would you say, promoted among bartenders. But, you know, and that also means... And properly rewarded. That also means you, uh, if you really want to have that experience, you need to be a regular in a bar. Mm-hmm. You can't just show up anywhere once and be like, I want something and then never go back because... What's the point? They need to get to know you. You need yeah. to get to know them. Then you can get the drinks you want and stop complaining about how somebody you've never met can't make the drink that somebody else yeah. who you never met before doesn't make it the same way. <laughs> we should uh, we should take a break on that, but that is a great point. I believe in what Colin says. Rather than go to a new place every time, if you really love a place, go there two, three times in a month. You're forever connected to that place, you know, if it's a good place, you know, and if they yeah. remember you. But, you know, I, I always love going to the same place. But a good bartender should remember you. If you're going to the same shift in the same place and you go three times. Absolutely. If they don't remember you, then they shouldn't be doing that. Do we job. have a sound effect for bartenders remembering customers, guys? <laughs> <Cha-ching>! <laughs> <laughs> nice. Awesome. So mature. <laughs>
And we are back uh, with our fabulous guest, uh, Colin uh, Alevra. Alevras. 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 That's is that a Spanish name? It's Greek for Miller, like cool. flower. Oh, very perfect. Part um, of a guild. Well, this is the main yeah. course on Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting from the back garden of Roberta's Restaurant. We're sponsored today by Hearst Ranch. And um, one of the reasons why, um, well, we have Colin in because he's an, an expert on beverages. But we also thought, um, because it's our little Valentine to Roberta's, that we would uh, talk about all the great craft beers that they sell on tap here at Roberta's Restaurant. And it changes often. And it does change often. And they really, you know, they spend a lot of time thinking about and sourcing these really, really good beers. And they take really good care of them, which is something that I think a lot of people, and unfortunately, Sam Merritt was not feeling well today and couldn't join us. But um, as you know, Colin, he actually gives a class to bartenders around the city and in, I think, the state area where he um, tells people how to take care of good beer because um, it's oh, not yeah. as simple as just uh, sticking the hose in the keg and turning on the taps. I mean, you really have to be careful about your temperature, about keeping the hoses clean and you know the taps clean and all that kind of stuff. So absolutely. Um, so our next beer that we're trying uh, with our friend Colin here is um, a, looks way darker than the Fisherman's Brew that we just tried. But, but it's still light. But it still has a really light, uh, if somewhat no. more malty, caramelly type flavor. Well, this I is think called the Penichuk? Penichuk is the brewery. Penichuk. Um, and the style is called Schwarzbier, which is basically beer. German for black beer. Yeah. Um, Schwarz. Now still in the lager style. So this is a right. bottom fermented beer. It's slightly colder temperatures. Um, and if you want to think um, just in general terms for people who are Getting into beer, don't know a lot. I always think of um, the difference between ales and lagers is sort of um, ales are red wine, lagers are white wine. Uh-huh. Ales are red wine, of, lager is white wine. That's yeah. a good way of char- characterizing um, it. You know, the lagers are always going to be a little cleaner, um, a little more restrained. Mm-hmm. Um, ales are going to be a little wilder, a little fruitier. Um, lagers definitely have a more, let's say, rigid set of parameters that you need to uh, fall into. Um just because of the way of brewing. Now, with the Schwarz beer, I mean, what's interesting about it is it's it's dark. It looks black. Um, yeah, it looks like Guinness without beer. the head. Yeah, Right. But what I think is important is that a lot of people misinterpret dark beer as being heavy. Right. Um, Absolutely. And color and weight um, have nothing to do with each other. Why is that? Why? Is it because of Guinness? Because is it because black is perceived as like dark chocolate, stronger? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a visual um, cue that happens to be misleading. Mm-hmm. Um, just because things are dark doesn't make them heavy. Um, and especially an example like this, where it's still light, it's crisp, there's a mm-hmm. little bit of yes. hops, but not a lot. And there's this nice, beautiful sort of cold, um, like coffee note, which yeah. comes directly from... Um, dark roasted barley. Uh-huh. It's got um, drinkability. Yes. Um, one of the things that happens. One, what? I wouldn't be chugging this one. This you could I, though. I couldn't. You chug can. It. No. I mean, this is very popular um, in For lots a dark of places. Beer. Uh huh. In dark beer, I don't find it, you know, heavy at all. No, um, definitely not. And I like the slightly I'm roasted flavor. Nice. Um, there's a brewery called Kostritzer, um that also makes a Schwarz beer from Germany. Um, that was both Bismarck and Goethe's favorite beer. Oh, really? Ooh, uh-huh. Goethe. And uh, I wrote that on a I wrote that on a beer menu once, and everybody kept asking me, "Are those the brewers?" Oh dear! And I was like, "See what a world we live in." Yeah, 
Um, so what I want to point out is the difference between light and dark beer is simply how far the barley has been roasted. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're going to produce alcoholic beverages from grain, um, all the sugars in the grain are tied up in complex carbohydrates, which need to be converted into simple sugars for yeast to eat them. So what we do is you take barley um, or wheat or the grain of your choice, um, and you need to germinate it. You need to get it moist and hot, just like making bean sprouts at home. Yeah. Um, And when the tails um, are almost about the length of the grain itself, that's when um, there are certain enzymes that get activated. Those enzymes convert the starch into sugar, which the plant now wants to grow. This is how plants work. Yeah. We need to stop this process to keep all the converted sugar in the grain. Um, Traditionally... um, this was done over open fires, um, i.e. scotch, used peat fires. That's why uh-huh. you have this smoky um, aroma. Um, and most beer was smoky to some extent um, until about the, like, 17, 1800s um, when they started making cleaner kilns to dry these malts out faster with less smoke and sort of have a cleaner flavor. But so just a little bit of dark roasted barley will sort of stain a beer mm-hmm. um, and make it darker. And you're going to get a little more caramelized flavors. Um, but the variety of malts and what the actual, what we refer to as the grain bill, which is sort of the uh, grain recipe for any particular beer. Um, bill, like a B-I-L-L? Yeah, a grain bill That's or a cool. mash bill. Um but that will determine ultimately the flavor. But there's different ways to uh, dry out your um, barley. And so you can do it over low temperatures for a long time, which will produce a certain flavor profile. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do it over high heat very quickly, um, which will do something else. You can do it with a lot of humidity and dry it out extremely slow. You can roast it all the way to almost burnt. Um and every variety of time and temperature and humidity in between. Um, so with this one product, barley, um, you can get an infinite range of sort of colors and available sugars. Fantastic. Um, mm. Ooh, yeah. Very interesting. Well, let's take a one-minute break after that and then come back and talk a little bit about Colin and, and his new work at Mama Fuko. Um, which is very and how you got to be such an expert on beer. Yeah, if you came out of the that kitchen. That one key, you I have to drink hear. a lot. Yeah.
are back with uh, Colin Olivares, um, who is giving us a seminar on beers. This is the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to the main course. Katie, we went to DBGB's. Uh, we went to DBGB's on Friday. Friday night, so and Colin was there. We were lucky, yeah. and so we got a little beer. You were wearing a really great seersucker jacket, by the way. Oh yeah. What yeah. beers did you have us taste that day? Because they were really fun. Speaking of the sour, like letting when you were saying in the fr- previous yeah. segment that you could let it ferment slowly, like dry it out really slowly, and I'm guessing that in that case, that's when you produce like the two sour, more sour beers that we tried. Well. Separate, that would be the malting, um, ah. converting a barley into malted barley um, to get available sugars. During the fermentation process, um, especially with ales, that you're going to produce um, sour notes, possibly. Um, there's a kind of beer um, called Lambic uh-huh. um, that is deliberately soured um, and still made in that way. Um Traditionally, the wort or the uh, sort of warm, sugar-rich barley extract solution is fermented in shallow pans in the uh, attics of farmhouses in Belgium, Uh all with sort of wild indigenous yeasts, um, and the beers are exceptionally sour. Um, In a way, for some people, you can think of it as a preemptive spoilage, Uh Um, you know, rather than let it get sour later, like, let's get it sour right now, get it out of the way. Right. And produce something that's very refreshing and much more wine-like mm-hmm. than most beers. Um, and they flavor those, as everybody has seen, probably with blueberry or Sometimes, or... yeah. And wah, wah. I've, always stayed a- I've always stayed away from well, them because I think that's such a gross idea. Well, okay, right? the thing is, it depends on when you make the addition. Um, you oh. can ferment beer with fruit um, and can actually produce quite complex, um, beautiful flavored beers especially those belgian kind the problem is when you do it to like wine or cheese yeah yeah you know well I mean, you know I'm or all for not adulterating my products although so lambic i think is about uh, isn't it about allowing everything in the region just to come and change the beer every batch well is i mean different. you know if you're thinking about um flavored beer especially fruit flavored beers if you're producing beer at a time when you coincides with a fruit harvest um, one way to preserve and get the benefit of those mm. fruits is to ferment them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, historically, if you look at uh, Johnny Appleseed and the Georgia Peach, um, those weren't for eating out of hand. That was for producing your Making own cider. applejack. Yeah. yeah. Um, so and, you could get and drunk out on the prairie. And producing um, in the South a peach brandy that's unfortunately disappeared from the market. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what Georgia peaches are for. They're not... Yeah. Almost none of those apples at Johnny Seed were really for eating. I mean, no, yeah. nobody ate an apple. They were like crab apples. That was that like. was forage for uh, animals. It was right? to make booze. No, it was yeah. to make booze because you, you know you didn't have any. I mean, unless you were like mushroomologist or something like that, which is called a what? Mycologist. Mycologist. Which you were right. You you always told I'm me a, some fascinating things I'm, about I'm, some mushroom. I'm in definitely Oregon. down with the fungus. The, <laughs> I hope it's not down with you. On I, your, uh, <laughs> We're going to have to extend. You have to see a doctor about that. No. Yeah. Isn't there a mushroom that's like the entire state of Oregon or something like that? Yes. yes. There's a form of cryptogramic earth um, that spreads over, I think, like, I'm going to exaggerate and say like 4,000 square miles. God! And it is one genetic organism. Um, and it is connected. How wicked cool is that? Yeah. Scary. Uh, I like that. It's, it's neat. It's a beautiful you know? thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's hey, a lot nature of... Nature uh, grand. 
It's like an well, avatar, that tree with the roots that went everywhere. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, without without fungus, um, those uh, things that actually break down lignin and wood, you'd never get rid of dead trees. Lumber would stay right. around forever. You need something that can break this stuff down. Um, and it doesn't happen in animals. It only happens with fungus. Right. It happens that fungus is cheese, right? Yeah. Keeps uh, John Madden in business with his Tafactin Tanactin ads. Yeah. <laughs> Gross. Well, let's move on to the next beer, Colin. Yeah. And while we're talking about the beer, let's talk about a little bit about how you transitioned from kitchen sure. to beverage director and, uh, and acquired this encyclopedic knowledge of uh, brewing. And It might be more Wikipedic, I think, now. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It sounds it's, really it's, good it's, to me, man. Yeah. <laughs> for, if, if, if you missed any of the show, just go to the first sentence in Wikipedia for any yeah. of the uh, they just memorized major it. beer terms. <laughs> Winging it. Um, no, but what happened was I was uh, involved cooking and realized... Did you go to culinary? Did I you went to know? culinary school, uh-huh. um, a place that used to be known as Peter Kump's. Yes. Um, which is now the sure. Institute for Culinary Education. Nice. Yes. Um, and had a wonderful... Did you know my friend Catherine Alford? Catherine was my first instructor. No way. Well, oh, she I'm lives still... right next door to me and she's one of my good friends. What about Erica Wise? She was here a couple of weeks ago. I don't know Erica... I think she came afterwards. She has a show on the Heritage Radio Network called Why We Cook. Nice. How about Arthur Bohm? Remember him? No. Oh. What about Peter Kump himself? Was he Peter already? Kump was around, um, yeah. and he was quite a great guy. Um, Did he teach you anything? Um, specifically, no, other than love for food and enjoyment of the cooking as a thing itself. What um, interaction did he have with the student body towards the end of his career? Um, very little. I mean, at that point, he was sort of the school itself was established and uh, people like Richard Simpson, um, mm-hmm. who's still the director of education over there, um, were starting to take a more responsible role uh, for the everyday operation of the school. And Peter at that point had become very involved in the uh, what became the James Beard Foundation. Right. Um, and saving the James Beard House. Our initial uh, graduations from Peter Kump's culminated in some of the first dinners at the Beard House. Mm. Before um, they had their daily dinners like they do now? Yeah, before it became sort of a stage for... Mm-hmm. For up-and-coming. Or, up and, or, or a little up-and-comers, but yeah. it was... Um, restaurants, every restaurant. Every restaurant yeah. sends a well, chef. Yeah. The ironic story Incredible. is I didn't actually graduate from Peter Kump's. Um, it was a nine-month program, and I left after like eight and a half months. I was a work-study student, and... Uh, was work, had gotten a job in the restaurant and was sort of like, well, this is why I'm going to school. Which restaurant? I uh, got a job at a restaurant called Petrosian. Really? Um, oh, on 56th and 7th? Yeah, 57th and 7th. Cool. 56th and 7th, yeah. yeah. So you make a good blini. Yeah. I've got a great blini recipe. Um, Did they so, use sustainable caviar there or only uh, like... No, blini? this no, was back in the was dark before ages. Before anybody had even heard of I mean, the Petrosian family... then? Probably. Mm-hmm. I think it's been endangered for many, many, many years. But the Petrosian family made their fortune after the Bolshevik Revolution um, becoming the first exclusive importers of Russian caviar into most of Western Europe, specifically France, England, and the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, So they were a pair of Armenian brothers who'd left the Soviet Union to go to medical school in Paris and were going to these parties and nobody had caviar. And they were like, "How can you party without caviar?" Right? Ex- well, that's what they thought, well, and so I never they called do. up um, <laughs> Jack and Nat. That had to cancel a, a, a DJ gig because there was no caviar. Yeah, 
Yeah. And so they called up the newly formed, you know, post-Czarist government and said, who's in charge of exports? And they went, who's it? What? Yeah. What do you mean? Export what? Yeah. And they said, all right, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to give you a bunch of money and we're going to have the exclusive rights to import Russian caviar. And so did they you, held that for almost a century. That's amazing. That's a cool. Now, story. did you learn how to cook there, or just serve caviar and mother of? No, I, I definitely learned how to cook. Um, Were you in the kitchen? I met. Yes, okay. I was totally involved in cooking, and so I, I didn't really graduate from culinary school. And then the graduations used to be held at the Beard House, and you would cook for friends and family, and they would pay money, and it was a fundraiser. Can I ask one last question? Sorry, caviar is it ever cooked with, or is it always eaten raw? Um, very rarely cooked with, um, we used to make a sauce, um, with what they call pressed caviar, which are sort of the busted up eggs that they salt extra heavy mm-hmm. and yeah. press together, which is a much more, um, acquired connoisseur-like. As uh, if caviar taste. isn't acquired enough. This is like well, the Well, good Uber. caviar is quite sweet and quite delicious. Um, it, caviar is a lot like, um you know, sauterne or champagne. Like, good stuff is really good, and mediocre stuff sucks. Yeah. There's no... Is the domestic you know, any... You actually, know? the domestic stuff, I, some of it's quite, quite nice. Where is it from, like, down Tennessee, Mississippi, that there's, area? There's, well, there's a... Um, Sterling Caviar is a sustainable farm in California um, producing caviar. Then there's... From things, Sturgeon? Yes, from mm-hmm. Sturgeon. Um, then there's the Montana um, native Sturgeon population that they're doing some sustainable harvest with. Then there's Hackleback um, and a few other varieties, Lumpfish. These are the um, big orange kind? No, that's, that's salmon, salmon and trout roe. Okay. Um, trout roe, that's Yeah, I love trout roe, hate salmon, um, but that's me. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of things throughout the Mississippi, um, various uh, species of anachronistic ancient fish. That produce lots of eggs that are Amazing. tasty. Anyway, I'm sorry to go on a tangent. So back to Cump. So they would have some so, things at the Beard House. Yeah, so we do things at the Beard House. And then about nine years after I left culinary school, I got invited to do a dinner at the Beard House. And I called up the school and asked if we could arrange for this to actually be my graduation dinner. Um, and so I did get <laughs> a diploma. Great. Good for um, you. Yeah, a little close to almost 10 years after I left school, I finally had acquired enough uh, professional life credit to make to up for that last month of school yeah. that mm, I just right. didn't quite get around to. Um, so I actually am an alumni instead of a dropout. <laughs> um, it took a while, though. Um, and so I was cooking and then realized that um, wine and beverage is uh, a real intrinsic part of dining. Um, you tend to get trained when you're in the kitchen early on that sort of, you know, the chefs are, chefs are gods. And we do what we want, and, you know, it's very egocentric about who controls the dining experience and what does the diner have, but that never really leaves room for beverage. And you've got to drink something, and, you know, for some people, um, beverage with dining is sort of, well, I'm going to make whatever I want, and you can find something that matches. Right. Um, Or they'll make food that's so convoluted and complex that there's sort of nothing to really... There's no room left on your palate for beverage. Um, but I started to get interested in thinking, like, someday if I have my own restaurant, like, wine and beverage needs to be an important part of this. And if I'm actually going to be um, responsible for this, I need to know about this. Well, if you think about it real quick, I mean, like, in the 
six, before, like, I think the 15th century, no chef had ever, no name was known of any chef. No, you know, chefs were hard to come by. And now before recently... Before 2000. Before well, yes. con- Kitchen Confidential... Right, right. Chefs toiled in total obscurity. And now all of a sudden... Maybe Jean-Louis Palladin or something. Well, now ten, these past 10, 20 years, you have a whole flurry of them. So it makes sense that following behind that, 25 years later, comes the other component of going out and gastronomy, which is the beverage part. Yeah, I think it's uh, incredibly important. It can really be... Um, you know, it makes a meal complete. Yeah, um, it can make or break them. You know, otherwise you're just snacking. Sometimes I go if for the If there's no the beverage alcohol. involved, you're snacking. Yeah, and then you, <laughs> you start know? with the cocktail, you know, and then you either go beer or wine. I mean, that's an exciting part of a meal. Or you stay with a cocktail. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I like staying with cocktails, actually. Do you do that? I don't do it often, but I have to say that as I get older, I find that I am um, wine. I just drink it like grape juice, and I get... You know, headache and stuff. I get tipsy instantly. Well, I like Bombay martini straight up with an olive. It cuts across and allows the food to come out. Like if it's a steak or thing, I like the way oysters or a gin martini will cut across. Well, with seafood, yeah, I would definitely advocate drinking. Yeah, vodka. (laughs) No, I always do gin though. Gin with oysters? I don't think so. Really? Okay, Colin, I I defer to you, man. Really, gin with oysters—that's a no-no. I don't know. I would have drunk them with like oyster shooters where you drop an oyster in the bottom of a glass, put a dollop of horseradish in and finish it off with a hit of vodka, knock the whole thing back. We digress. We're doing what Curtis said. Don't just talk. We should yeah, go back yeah. to right. a beer. Yeah. Okay. Or to Collins. Uh, should we? Uh, what's the next, to our next beer? beer? Yeah. Um, I think we have the, the Porter, the VOS. Which one have we done? We've done the fish. We did the fish and the penichuk. Mm-hmm. So now you have um, the Rare, mm-hmm. which is the Oma Gang up mm-hmm. there. Then we have the Porter, Defiant Brewery. Mm-hmm. And then we have Kelso Brewery in Brooklyn. Oh, I think that this is the uh, Recessionator, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, the Recessionator is delicious. I've, I've ordered was... that quite a few times. Yeah, that's the Recessionator, uh, clearly. Which one was that? The Kelso. Kelso, right. right. Um, also, a lager, um, but made in a strong lager style. Um, and lager is the equivalent of a white wine mm-hmm. for beer. So this is almost verging into, this is like big California Chardonnay really? of, of beer. Yeah, maybe that's why I like it. because I'm, a, I'm a- um, You know, you're going to see a little more honeyed note in this. There's a lot more barley. They're, they've really upped the alcohol um, somewhat. It's maltier. Basically, um, if you cross the Penichuk and the Cape Ann uh, Fisherman's Brew... And turn the volume up a little bit. That's what this is about. Um, God, this is like fried chicken or something. It's delicious. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, It's a little bit sweeter. It's a nice beer. It's a great um, beer to drink, eat pizza with. It's yeah. like, yeah. Really like it. Well, it's stronger. Too. There's a little more alcohol. There's mm-hmm. a little more stuff. It's going to stand up more and be more participatory um, in your meal. I think one of the things that's interesting is we were talking earlier about you know Budweiser and drinkability. Um if you look at sort of beer rating websites and people, uh, the Vox Populi uh, rating beer, a lot of people um, will rate a beer based on um, its, in the fancy term for drinkability is sessionability. It's the English like sessionability. Interesting. What is that again? Out, we were yeah. talking about it at the restaurant, yeah. of course. Um, and sessionability sort of represents the uh, ability to continue drinking the same thing throughout the night. Oh, yeah. Um, which. <laughs> I don't quite understand um, coming from the 
food and beverage world, um, why this is a benefit. Um, to go a whole session. Like, Well, I Carlo Petrini was a believer in that. I mean, just interestingly to talk about the founder of Because he of didn't food. want to think about beer. The, the reason you have sessionability is so you don't have to think about it. You're just going to keep drinking it. It almost seems yeah, like the word built by the big corporations. Your object is to get loaded as opposed to enjoy Yeah, you're not having uh, a, a certain experience. Sensual you're having a, Yeah, you're having a placeholder yeah. um, while Katie, intoxication sets in. straw that's connecting to your mouth from your hat is uh, <laughs> clogging, by the way. It's nice. leaking all over the equipment. <laughs> Excellent. Because it's old, like me. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, if you're going to take beer and wine and alcoholic beverage and food together you need the synthesis of them and often things like um double box or stronger beers um bigger ales um are a better match with food mm -hmm. um and yeah they're not the kind of beer that you're going to drink six of right. um and nor should they be but otherwise you know a lot of people still relegate beer to the sort of um least interfering soda-like um all right, it's a little bit more than water, and I'm going right. to get a buzz off it, so it's good, but it's not really challenging, or sort of its highest uh, regard will be its ability to, uh, you know, wash away chilies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. it will handle the heat, and that's why we're drinking, you know... Jenny Creams. High, yeah, highly <laughs> attenuated, crappy cheap beer. Yeah. Um, no, it's not crappy, though. I mean, to be fair to Budweiser and stuff, like Charlie Papazian, the chair of the uh, Craftsman, or American Brewers Association, he said that it's it's not a bad beer. It's just a beer for one type of occasion, you know, like a Super Bowl, or not even, but... Well, I actually think it is a bad beer. I mean, the thing is, why don't we go and get one and do a taste comparison? Because, you know, it's a clean drink, you know? I mean, the fact that... I think that it's sudsy and soapy tasting. Really? And has a sweet note that I find very unpleasant, yeah. I mean, sometimes I don't mind a Bud or a Modelo or, you know... I think Modelo is delicious. But isn't that the Bud of Mexico? It could well be, but it's a nicely made beer. I think they're... Are there any great, huge beer company beers that you like, that you admire as a brew person? No, not at all. Really? Um, no, that's not necessarily true. What about true. Like a beer like a Dos Equis or a Stella Artois? I think it's a uh, really nice drinkable beer. Well, yeah. I have a... Um, <laughs> on, uh, Stella, Stella's crap. I have um, a, um, a good. quote I like from it Abraham than Lincoln. Well, you know, there's degrees of bad. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, it's not that they're unpalatable, but... To me, it's like having people argue over um, Diet Coke and Pepsi tab. and Tab, you know, like, okay, great, geek out over there, and I'm going to go have a Manhattan. And All right, I, well, I'm, listen, I have a thing a on this one. thing. It's um, This is um, a, a speech from, it's a one short paragraph, Abraham Lincoln's 1859 address to the Wisconsin State Agricultural Society. It's pointing to what we're talking about right here about the big companies and also to what Heritage Foods is about. Thank you. I guess that's Abe Lincoln is fierce or something. So um, Abe Lincoln writes, The ambition for broad acres leads to poor farming, even with men of energy. I scarcely ever knew a mammoth farm to sustain itself much less to return a profit upon the outlay. I have more than once known a man to spend a respectable fortune upon one, fail and leave it, 
and then some man of more modest aims get a small fraction of the ground and make a good living upon it. Mammoth farms are like tools or weapons, which are too heavy to be handled. Ere long, they are thrown aside at a great loss. I always thought that was very poetic poetic and very, you know, telling of a future that he couldn't have even imagined genetically modified creatures and laboratories. Yeah, and crops. Product. And, yeah. you know, he was speaking at a time when uh, farmers were the most numerous class, you know. So, um, anyway, I thought that was, uh, he was kind of ahead of his time in terms of... Uh, of recognizing the dangers of going too big. Or poignantly, you know, you know, uh, criticizing something that would come later. But um, on that Lincoln note, we should uh, take a break and um, come back for... The second Come back hour. for our last two beers. Yeah. yeah. She's upset. She's going off about something that you said. She doesn't get your humor. If I ever saw a girl that I needed in this world, you are the one for me. And we are back with the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting from the back of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, 261 Moore Street. And we're sponsored today by the Hearst Ranch. My name is Katie Kiefer. I'm here with my co-host and beloved companion, Patrick Martins. Beware the Ides of March. Beware. And our guest today is Colin Alevres, who has been regaling us with uh, not only a, a guided tour around the incredible craft brews that are sold on tap as draft beer at Roberta's Restaurant, mm-hmm. an ever-changing, ever-interesting uh, panoply of fabulous craft brewing. Um, <clears throat> and, what's the um, next beer we're tasting? Yeah. Um, what, what, the what, next what's beer next? we're tasting is from Amagang Brewers in Cooperstown, New York, the rare VOS Ale. Is that um, Duval? Um, mm-hmm. They are owned by Duval, I believe. The uh, Belgian, they got started the by like Wendy Littlefield and Don. That guy, Wendy. And I don't know. Okay. I remember they used to be independent, but then they sort of teamed up with uh, Belgian brewers to produce uh, sort of more interesting Belgian-style ales um, in the New World. Um, and the VOS, it's nice. I mean, I think the f- first thing you're going to notice about this beer is... Being sort of warmer fermented, top fermented, you get much fruitier esters um, and aromas out of it. So you're esters. Gonna, yes, That's esters. E S T E R, not with an H. Yes. As in, not in the name Esther. Exactly. Um, Would you care to define that word? Uh, esters are aromatic, um, volatile substances found in plants. Just like um, my Aunt Esther. I have an Aunt Esther. Volatile, too. yeah. yeah. Um, she is not volatile. But they produce all the fruity aromas that you'll see in wines and beers and spirits, um, as well as flowers when you go to smell a flower. Those are the esters. Um, it's the... Uh, Thank you. Yeah. I did not know that. So this, uh, they're in, they're so in this Cooperstown. As opposed, yeah, so this is an ale. So now this is a... So we're moving into a different class of yeah, beer. Yeah, top fermented beer. So what we're, you're we're into the red wine yes. uh, and, equivalent. Yes, and uh, this is going to be more like... Uh, Dolcetto, um, oh my god, bright and fruity. I think I like this better. Yeah, this is really and you know one thing I noticed and you did this for us when we were at um, DBGB's on Friday was most of the beer we tried, all of the beer we tried was basically room temperature, mm-hmm. and it really allowed um, 
the all of the various aromas and flavors to come out in a way that when it's chilled down and especially really cold, um, simply do not have a chance to emerge. And this is just below room temperature. I think this is like probably the perfect temperature for serving beer. And it's absolutely incredible. Talk about floral. I get, I'm getting those esters, baby. Big yeah, time. Yeah, you get some, you know, some peachy apricot mm-hmm. sort of aromas, a little bit of a floral nature to it. Um, Very there's cool. a little bit of sweetness on the palate. Um, And texturally, we're into a whole new zone now. Yeah. Now, this is rich beer. Um, We're getting there. Hops, much, much less. Uh Um, There's not that bitterness. Right. Um, There's just a hint of it. Um, But just lovely stuff. Now, see here, now this is demanding food. It is. You know? Yeah, this really calls out for it. Yeah. See, where the other lagers... Nice cheese. I can see drinking this with a great burgundy cheese. I think, yeah... um, God, beer and cheese is such a natural. Um, it is because of their their natures and the fermentation. It's sort of the lack of tannin. I can't think of a worse general pairing than red wine and cheese. Because they both I think fight it's against a very each hard other. Match, yeah. I've and always like found Altoid that a very hard match. I mean, you can get very specific. Yeah, Patrick, you are so. You can get so specific with a red wine and a cheese that are nice together. But yes, generally but you have speaking, to be specific. I yeah. mean, beer and cheese, you actually have to work to screw it up. Red wine and cheese inherently doesn't really want to go. Big clash. Yeah. And well, you are very if opinionated there's one on that thing subject, I must say. I could leave as my legacy to the world is convince people to stop drinking red wine and ch- eat cheese. It really Unless you I mean, really know what their, you're doing. Yeah. To their credit. I have but if, 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 on, if, if we could just remove it from the general consciousness, yeah. that red, like, oh, red wine and cheese. Like, yeah, right. You know? Ooh, this is the very best way to yeah. eat cheese. Yeah. Like, no. shut that So that F would be up. your one thing if you could get national stage for 30 seconds. That yeah. might be what you say. Just please stop. I would, stop I would the reinforce madness. that the left lane is the <laughs> passing lane, if ever given that Yeah, I don't stage. drive, so... Oh yeah, you don't drive. I mean, I can, but I don't have a car. Oh my god, you are. I love to drive. Oh, you do. See, I hate to drive, and I didn't. I didn't actually. Although I got my license at sixteen, I did not actually learn to drive until I was forty. Yeah, and then I had this like strange little flasher treat me how to teach me how to drive in the Upper West Side. Nice. Yeah, it was really interesting. Or how to drive away fast. Yeah, no, he didn't actually flash me, but boy, did he look like he was gonna. So we digress. Colin, what type of beers do you keep at home? Like, what are the Beers that you find yourself wanting um, more often. Really more than anything else, um, I adore sour beer. And I think that comes from years of wine drinking. Um, sometimes I miss the acidity. Um, and one interesting thing is that hops um, is very closely related to cannabis. Um, they're very like first cousins. Indeed. And you can often, in an IPA, um, an India Pale Ale, especially the American versions of IPAs, um, which are very strongly hopped, very aromatic. Yeah. Um, they smell like weed. Um, and there's I no mistaking it. That. And yes. uh, we've used that as a sales technique. And people are like, what is that one like? And you're like, it smells like weed. And they're like, I want it. Or they're or, like, oh, no, oh, I would never that. do that. <laughs> especially if people are dining with their parents. It's really funny to watch them sort well, of... Well, what about how their like, parents experience it? Well, sometimes the pe- you know, the grown-ups are like... Uh, what yes, does that please. taste like? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, that hoppy nature, um, I don't often crave it the same way that I crave complexity and acidity mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a beverage. 
And so sour beer to me is really, really beautiful because it's really, uh, I think, the pinnacle of the brewer's art is to able to manage that souring um, in a skillful way. Because yeah. if it's done ineptly, it's spoiled and it's horrible and it tastes right. like vinegar. Um, if it's done well, it adds a whole new dimension of complexity um, and pairing potential. Do you find that more food friendly than, say, the um, the VOS that we just tried? Yeah, which I absolutely. Think, because I, when we were at DBGB's, I mean, mm-hmm. not to keep going back to that, but we did have this wonderful meal there. When we tried those two sour beers, I thought to myself, well, I would have a hard time figuring out exactly what I would want to eat with these. Like, I enjoyed the experience of them, and they were both quite delicious. But for uh, for really drinking my, you know, with my food, like, the, what was the beer in the larger bottle that we got at the very end? Oh, yeah, the Bodegal Bruegges uh, number 156. There, well, it, the that ironic thing fabulous. is that's... His version, I believe his name is Casper Jennings, um, who's a brewer. Um, that's sort of his farmhouse Danish version of an American IPA. Uh-huh. So it's um, American Cascade hops um, with some orange peel um, brewed up. But it's, if you don't try to overdo it, I mean, again, balance is the whole thing. You know, nothing in that beer is out of balance or demands Absolutely. your attention. That's right. It was but, like, you know, a there's a synthesized whole yeah. um, that's incredibly complex and deep and which, yeah, I'm sure for someone like, you know, master taster Carlo Petrini, who doesn't want to consider beer as a serious beverage, um, you know, it's too much. It's too much complexity, you know? Well, I think maybe what, what it is about him is that it, maybe removes that you know the terroir is moved like you know a german beer can be made better in cooperstown than it is or you know belgian beer can be <laughs> made better in cooperstown it's not so terroir specific although there are many beers that well, do have yeah i mean beer doesn't have to be terroir specific because it's very rare that a brewery will produce all their own ingredients um, well, we wanted this. This is segueing yeah. perfectly mm-hmm. into what I wanted to address earlier when we were on the break, which is how much do growers at this point, you know, farmers play into the craft beer movement? Like, are there enough? Are there enough volume? Is there enough volume of craft beer being produced that you could actually um, support uh, a movement of farmers who were involved in just producing the product needed for creating those craft beers? Um, well, it's quite interesting. I think probably... Um, you need to talk more into your mic, Colin. Sorry. Um, definitely to some extent, you see farmers, um, especially in the Pacific Northwest, growing um, obscure and rare hop varieties. Um, there's one in particular that comes to mind called Sirachi Ace, which was a hybrid developed in Japan in the 70s that never took off commercially, but has a very distinct lemon aroma mm-hmm. um, that you see here and there. Um but again, it's, you know, it's barley growing, uh, and I don't know that you're ever going to be able to make so much grain to remove it from the world of commodities, um, and in a way... Oh, I see. In other words, you wouldn't... Well, say you're a bar- say you're a grain farmer and you grow barley. Couldn't you grow, like, two acres of a specific type of barley for, you know, X number of breweries and then have the rest of it be the commodity barley that... You know, it's it's quite possible. Um, are they beholden to contracts with companies? Like they don't want to violate and cut out a middleman that had been integral to the industry up until that point? I don't know. Well, the, see, the problem 
with that is that um, beer being not a direct agricultural product like wine, um, you know, you can grow grapes, you make wine, you're done. Um, Barley, even after it's grown and then it's threshed, um, it still needs to be germinated and malted. Um, Mm -hmm. So you're never going to be able to cut out the maltster, as they're referred to. Um, and that's the guy that toasts it, and yeah, then, and germinates and then turns and it, it into that sort of gooey substance. Which well, it's still if you dry. Buy a beer and making then, kit, that's what you get. Well, you can get malt extract, ah. um, but that's not all grain brewing. Because home brewers often use those. Yeah, well, even big breweries I mean, will I use beer malt for a long time with extract, a um, which is basically yeah, they they pre make the wort and. Re- just remove the water and from it, it. I see. and then you add the water back to it. Right. Um, and many, many large breweries um, use malt extracts um, and hop oil instead of actual hops. Mm. You can extract the uh, the alkaloids from the hop plant um, mm. and just use the oils. Get the flavor, yeah. Um, you know, and they're always going to be lesser. Um, but you know, real barley um, from a real place is certainly a possibility. Um, it's interesting to note that. New York State um, in the 19th century was a huge hop-producing region, um, you know, before we actually had expanded out west. Now almost all of it is grown um, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh-huh. Although um, it does make sense. I mean, everything was grown on the No, but why? At the, for the first hundred, But just years, like elm was, trees, uh-huh. um, there's actually a... There was a hop disease. There's, there's a hop disease that's oh. still in existence in the soil, I which see. is why there's no commercial hop production um, mm-hmm. on the eastern seaboard. Um, now, where did those diseases come from? I mean, the vines of uh, Europe suffered from that, too. Is there a certain? Is there a correlation between those vines getting sick and over-abuse or over-taxing the soil? No, I think this is direct res- result of, um, like, localized infestations... <clears throat> of organisms that have latched hold onto things and never had the opportunity to sort of um, either express themselves uh-huh. or get transported. Well, it's um, like the potato blight that hit the tomato crop last year, Patrick. I mean, those those pathogens live in the soil and exist in the soil, and it takes a particular set of climate, uh, humidity, temperature uh, parameters to kind of unleash that particular pathogen. Yeah. Kind of like mad cow disease, like somehow it's there but remains dormant because of the age at which we slaughter the animals and then every once in I a while. I suppose you could say that, yeah. I, yeah. I think that's a slightly different well, equation. Well, I mean, but when you look at things like um, same effect, you know, though. the root louse so much of that it. caused, you know, phylloxera vine, yeah. um, in European vines that came over on the roots and the dirt I mean, more the dirt than anything mm-hmm. else um, that infected European vineyards. I mean, now when we graft American rootstocks onto European vines to create phylloxera-resistant breeds, it's not that American rootstocks are resistant or impervious to the phylloxera bug. What it is is the rootlet, the little hairs, actually outgrow their ability to feed, Um so it's an adaptation, but it doesn't do anything to remove the pathogen from the soil I see. Uh-huh. or deprive it um, of what it needs. It's just a, a workaround um, mm-hmm. that naturally occurred here because here is where the root louse was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think anytime you transport crops um, around the world, and certainly they try to be more careful about it these days, but you're always going to get potential for ecological disaster when you upset the balance of power, even on a small scale. And, 
you know, as far as the root louse is concerned, um, you did the greatest thing ever, you know? I mean, the organism itself has probably got to be pretty pleased with itself. You mean for having produced, uh, yeah. for having forced humans to work around it yeah. and the solutions that we found. And, yeah. you know, now we have to coexist with it. Cool. And there's a lot of things that, you know, um, the organism itself may be quite happy with uh, the end result, but we're not because it's not beneficial to us. Mm-hmm. Um, Very true. Well, on that note, we should take a break. We should remind everyone that we're sponsored by Hearst Ranch. Awesome grass-fed beef. Remember and the we'll main. we'll have Brian Kenny on in from Hearst yes, Ranch we were sorry. in the next week or so. He was unable to make it today, but and I was all prepared with like a very interesting bunch of um, of uh, trade <laughs> blogs uh, discussing the whole antibiotics in the in the uh, agri- you know animal system uh, that we have here. Oh yeah, can we go to that next? Let's, if you want to. I mean, I'm not completely done with this, but uh, no, no. Let's you know, do a ten minute. Oh, okay. Let's, let's do let's another do a Colin couple segment, minutes. But I want to get do to one that. more segment with Colin, and then we'll and then let's talk about Katie Couric's, uh attack on antibiotics in the uh, two part series. at the uh, main course and <laughs> we had a uh, that up no uh, we had uh, I had a very interesting uh, hour with uh, Jack and Nat at- it had huge implications on the history of the world and um, it was basically creating the sound effects and I love it I- I could say any sound effect, and one second later, I was hearing 15 and ways of do doing it. it. Okay. 
I like that one. Can I can I hear the eagle one last time? Where's the kitty? I love that one. Where's the kitty? Do you one? even need a cart machine anymore? Or is this all on the interwebs? What's that? We don't have a cart machine. We just have yeah. a button. You just press a button. It's like recorded and digitally. That's awesome. Yeah. I know you did radio a long time ago. If you're talking about carts, because that's what we did at WBAI. We had a cart for everything. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what what magnanimous sound effect that has a connection to Vancouver would you use for Collins' interview so far? Me in Vancouver. Olympics. Oh. No, come on, guys, do it. How about a crash in a stream for the push? Oh my god, they didn't get it. Wasted on the luge track. They didn't do it. Oh my god. We were in a cab last night, and um, I was sitting up front because there were four of us, and. uh, and um, so my driver, I think, was Senegalese or whatever, and he, he was not a chatty guy. But anyway, we were listening to the radio, and they were talking about the, the man who was wasted on his luge. And, uh, and I looked at him, and I said, how crazy is that ride? And he said, I don't know, man. <laughs> I was like, 90 miles an hour on your back, feet first? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, man. <laughs> but you'd be able to fly right now if that happened to you. Katie would have nothing to worry about with her hair going out like that. Oh, Patrick, that's so cute. Um, so, but we're about, let's, let's come back to to Colin and. Uh, well, let's have yeah. we tasted the final beer? We have not tasted the final beer. Although the final we're all beer into our own no. special is a porter brew. from yeah. Defiant Brewery. Like, yeah, so Defiant, so if I'm not mistaken, is up in uh, excuse me, Nyack, New York. Yeah, um, oh, very nice. And I was actually born in Nyack. Mm. Where are you, um, Colin? Yeah. Uh, Good Samaritan General Hospital. Very pretty town. Yeah. I always love if you're on a 9W, you go past Nyack, there's a sign for Nyack in South Nyack, but it just says Nyack, so Nyack. Hmm. It's not like, <laughs> that's genius. That is. Like, every town should have one of those. Yeah. Um, Wakefield? So Defiant Brewing often makes English-style beer. Um, they, off- they have another uh, English mild called Little Thumper um, that I've enjoyed quite a bit. Now, with porters, um, porters are actually named after London, like, stevedores, porters who move stuff around. Sure. Like um, moving companies, like schleppers? Yeah. Yeah, schleppers. Guys that had yeah. to load and unload, That's right. you know, um, ships. But there's an art to that. It is amazing how a good mover can move the biggest, heaviest thing through tight confines. And then if you don't... Folding time and space. Yeah. To get you your furniture where it needs to go. instinctively learn that. you have, It takes years almost. Did you to, just make that up? Yeah. <clears throat> Okay, so what we need to do now is find a company that needs to buy that yeah. off of you because that's a beautiful. Wait, which one? Folding time and space oh. to get you where you need to go. That beats Woo! my. Uh... That's copyrighted, by the way. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> I stole that idea from Frank Herbert and Dune. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> oh. I, that beats my uh, War Lumber One company name for a uh, lumber company. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Um. So with the porter, you're always going to have, again, like a dark beer, but a little bit brighter. There's almost a little acidity in here. Um, yeah. Love the porters. Again, this being an American porter, um, it's a little bit hoppier um, than you might find in Europe. Um, but a really excellent brew. But Is again, like the like color the color belies the strength. I think the uh, VOS ale that we just Tasted. Has a much bigger flavor. Yeah, this is a much more dialed back. Yeah, and if controlled. you compare, like this is the big, slightly fruitier. I mean, there's definitely some cherry and some plum in there. Um, a little bit of coffee, a hint of chocolatiness. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of the big brother to the uh, Schwarzbier. Yeah, if you will. Mm-hmm. 
but they're very comparable um, and just lovely. It's got a little more acidity, definitely. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a little more It's mostly puckery. backwash by now. <laughs> oh, thank you. You should yeah, be so says, lucky. passing it over to the guest. <laughs> thank you. That's lovely, Patrick. Well, your guest, we do have another guest in studio who's your we sister. Do. Yes, my, my wonderful sister, Liz McDonald, is visiting us from Rhode Island. And, um, you know, when we all what go What about a man the- of, on the street interview about the beers? No, just kidding. What did, you, did you like them? I love them. I like the first one, the fish, I would say was my favorite. The Fisherman's Brew? You like that better than the, the, than the ale, brew. than the first ale we just did that had the very floral, distinct... That was delicious. It tasted, to me, I, I, I tasted clove in that one. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Could have been absolutely. Why not? So, um, are you going to be in uh, Rhode Island when we do our uh, broadcast uh, in a few in a few weeks? Uh, Most likely, yeah. From the mansion. Yeah. She she lived there. Kate, she lived right next door. I don't you guys have mansion, a beautiful Patrick. mansion. It's like one of those ones with like you think you've seen the whole house, and but then, then there's going. really. Twelve little rooms and coves and sections, really, and you, I, yeah. filled no. with magazines. It's a lovely place, and hopefully filled with magazines. It has. My father was an American Heritage collector, uh-huh. and he had about thirty years of it. And when American Heritage was, you know, originally published, it was published as a hardbound copy. It was yeah. really, it's a gore. I mean, finding those in a book sale or a library sale is a real find because the articles are always written by somebody quite interesting, um, who's like a professor of history from somewhere and really has something, or, or sometimes a really well known author. But, um, <clears throat> and they had editors, and they had editors, exactly right. Yeah, so Did and they do beautiful illustrations. And I, you know, I didn't read them, I, I but I used them a lot for um, book for like papers for school, right? Mm-hmm. That's what they I were was very say. good, uh. <clears throat> get to plagiarize from oh totally because you don't think my teacher could find that in that exactly <laughs> i discovered early on that if you wanted to really uh <clears throat> plagiarize a bibliography you could just make up books and just write whatever university press as if like yeah it's a magical book yeah did that a lot I had to do a- and 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 yeah, I would just throw my papers, my cheat papers, as if I was just messy and like an absent-minded professor. I would just throw all the answers on the floor next then, to your chair. Yeah, and then I would move them exam. without looking, and then look back down, and like I wouldn't be on the right page. Patrick, so I'd look back up, and then I would never did anything like that. Did you, Liz? I, I can't, never. I never. I, was I never had way too good a girl. Oh, oh my God! Cheat, I went to an all boys school. Ne- so did I. Went to all girls school. I would never have cheated. And by the way, that, w- how do you think I got into Vassar? Patrick, you're so smart. That's how you got into no, Vassar. No, there was a bunch of people who cheated, and the professors were just kind of happy so they wouldn't lose their jobs in <gasps> high school. Whoa! They just needed to make sure they needed to get passed. a few people into they the high want to top. Fail a bunch of Nobody yeah. ever cheated at NYU. I- Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You've restored my faith. No, cheating was, uh, no. And you know something? I wouldn't do it now, and I'd be mad at my kid if she did it, by the way. Cheat? Yeah. Sometimes you gotta, you know, Oh, I mean, cheating on your math homework bit. is one thing. Cheating on big exams. What about, yeah. like, SATs? Do you disagree with going into the bathroom, exchanging information, and then you disagree with that? I, I have no experience of that. Well, so just kidding. I mean, I think the challenge is, I'm, I'm um, what the goal of the test is, is to get the highest score. It's not really an assessment of mm-hmm. your education or your ability to really comprehend things so anyway you can get the highest score yeah means you win because you, what you need to do is look good to some computer that's scoring your test i so see what you're saying i'm saying if that's it. the system that you're going to play in yeah if you've figured out effectively how to game the system and not get caught 
Yeah. You win, and that skill will serve you well. That is true. You know? I'm do not saying it's... you children yet? I do. <laughs> That's troubling, Colin. I'm, I'm just saying, you know, like... No, look, I totally I, get, I got my I son into a gifted and talented city-run elementary school, and he had to take a an IQ test at four. I know, mine did too. And, it's really you know, I mean... Is there actually, anything I more ridiculous? I actually refused to uh, let my daughter be tested for gifted and talented because I thought it was so crazy. I, well, I was yeah. like, anyway, let's test go back to our part topic. Of the, uh, part of the uh, argument that a cheater will make is that, you know, they're going to do good stuff with the education. They're going to be curious. They're going to be engaged. But they have to pass some test that some other person created. So you get by the test. But then once you get to the final place, it's not like you lie around. I mean, you use the clubs. You play the sports. But, you know, yeah, if you have to... You know, I've never thought about cheating in this. I, I, I have to rethink my thoughts about it. Well, Cliff Notes. Uh, wow. What are Cliff Notes? Have you never oh, read Cliff lot, Notes? Thanks a lot, guys. I never I read had heard of them, I but books. I never used yeah, them. I, like books I enjoyed too, reading. I didn't so. always I never the read time. the Cliff Notes, but I, I, never I certainly did, did plagiarize some some big papers. But well, the, the, actually, the, the books that I plagiarized from were actually really, really instructive. Right. I read this great... I had to write a report on... Cervantes Don Quixote mm. and read this great great essay uh, by Vladimir Nabokov about the difference between belief and faith That's a good and that source. faith implies yeah. doubt and belief is ridiculous because you know it's true and there's no room for doubt there's no room for questioning right but faith is something to- totally different because you know it might not really exist and so therefore you're always on sort of tender ground and yeah. I mean, I ripped that essay off. A million um, times. Uh, just almost straight. All your way um, through. <laughs> but it was, it was genius. And, and it's really, yeah. it stayed with me. I still think about that essay and how I feel about it. I want to talk about that some more after we are know, done with the show. <laughs> so it, it served me well. Yeah. And I think I, uh, you know, made up a, yeah, a book that that was about uh, from, uh, you know, Rutgers University Press, published 1956, blah, 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 blah. But uh, really? no, it's a real essay, and it's fantastic. Wow, this interview is taking a turn. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I well, but I graduated from high school with a 1.2 GPA. What are you supposed to have? 3.0? Yeah. I mean, that's like a oh. D minus. A D. Oh, my God. Hey, Jimmy. Cool. Jimmy's Jimmy in town. Jimmy, 43. Get in here, man. Uh, we're talking beer, Jimmy. We're talking beer, and you're having some beer. Which, which one are you having? Defiant Porter from New York. Beauty. Let's come and sit over here next to me. So we've just had a, a very interesting uh, show so far. Yeah, we had a, we, Jimmy. We got to tell you, we had Rare this. Fish, we just had Porter, a very Chuck, interesting Kelsey. little segue into a discussion of cheating. Oh, really? And che- yeah, and like the skills that cheating implies, the smarts that are required for effective and and uh, successful cheating, and then the moral implication of cheating. Which says something that's not so great. I mean, cheating when you make beer, or cheating on no, Valentine's no, 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 cheating on like a <laughs> <laughs> wow, two, oh. completely two more turns. Subjects. Yeah, right. We're on the clover leaf now. We <laughs> <laughs> thought we were making a left, and now there's all yeah, kinds of options. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, we were talking about cheating in school. Oh, cheating, cheating on school, tests, yes. I guess. Cheating on tests. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, my class did it. Also, when we uh, did the. Um, Clubs, you know, we had to do this common application for all these schools. You could do a personalized one or the common one. And we would just be like sitting in the library and be like, okay, is there a Greek club? 
okay, so I'll be vice president, you know, and we would chair all these clubs. And as long as we all stuck to the story, the professors would be like, I guess they were meeting about Greek literature, you know, and we didn't know about it. Wow, that's right. a scam. Well, I, I never learned that cheating that. is institutionalized yeah, yeah. in Ivy League schools, and I'll tell you how it happens. That, how do you true. know that? I, I went know. to Columbia. And when I first got mm-hmm. there, I thought, okay, there's five books a week for every class. You have to sit and read them, and of course it's impossible. And after about three years, when I've been struggling through with C minuses and B pluses and dropping out of school every once in a while, I realized that the smart kids had special tutorials with, with the graduate students for every class. And they met at least once a week with, with every grad assistant. And they went through the, the relevant points of uh, what they were studying. Right. So they and didn't they, have to actually read they, every single yeah. word. And then they knew what was on the test. I mean, medical students do wow. that, right? It's institutionalized. Like, you don't Would have you to go to every class. Though? Well, it's, it's probably a coordinated you know, success or something. Well, I think it's, yeah. But it's you're taking advantage of a system. The system. That is already in place to help you excel because, of course, they recognize that even as they set these absurd requirements, they also recognize that nobody could possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's always going to be the 12 kids that really do try. Yes. And you need those. Like Jimmy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I got a C minus. Hey, but look what you did. My wife went to Columbia, and I can guarantee you that she never cheated or didn't read anything. Oh, really? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, she was in one of my classes, yeah, too. She, oh, the no most, way. How cool. Yeah, Renee, she's yeah. very cool. Yeah. But it's absolutely, not, that girl did not cheat, would never. How about you? My sister went to college. Did you cheat? No, but I did steal a textbook. I stole a textbook. <laughs> That's even worse. <laughs> now you've said it on the air. That makes I it real. a special cloak, an oversized man's coat. Why should talk in the An oversized man's gentleman's coat, and... um. I just I had to move that paperback into the coat because I couldn't pay for it. So you know, and I had to do what I had to do. Did you steal it from the library? I stole it from the bookstore. So you Even stole better. not to have to cheat. <laughs> it you was basically a hard didn't choice. want to have to make wow. up the. But in other words, you did read every single thing, even to the extent of having to actually steal the book. You still read every single thing you were supposed to, and you never resorted to cliff notes. Or... Never, never, never. Nope. Okay. Not cliff notes? No. no. But let me say this about that. My, um, my sons I, and all their cohorts, they're in high school, um, they cheat. They do spark notes and Wikipedia and, you know, they don't really have to read stuff. Well, things have changed now, right? We grew up without the internet. I mean, we used to be given eight weeks or something to do a paper. Like, who's given eight weeks anymore yeah, right. in fifth grade, you know? You don't have to wait for any books. You just Google something. Are any of you, you guys are probably younger than me, but did you have to type your papers? Absolutely. Yeah, one mistake, would you retype it? <sighs> well, that, no. I would just do whatever I had to do. That was the beginning of my graphic arts career. So technically you were cheating. No. <laughs> you used whiteout. You just whited well, out what wasn't was, convenient for you. It was academic Darwinism. Oh. <laughs> Ooh, I like the way well. you said that. And cheating is that, too. Yeah. Are we being cut by the... (laughs) That's Jack with a cane. Thanks, Uh, Carlo. (laughs) Shrimp and grits and eggs. Look at that. You got shrimp with your grits. Or or eggs and bacon and grits. Look at that. That's nice. So, well, I think this has actually been a very strange and interesting little turn to the conversation. I mean, I love... I mean, talk about solving the problems. Hold on, talking about your sister. Listen... (laughs) Let's talk about you know, issues, moral no. implications of. Well, uh, Katie, uh, do you want to talk to us about Katie Couric? 
Should we just go oh. into some well, of the... Well, Jimmy, it'd be fun to have you weigh in on this, both okay. of you guys. Um, Patrick and I, we, we were hoping to have Brian Kenny on today, and um, he you know, had another engagement, whatever. And um, so... We're all bitter. Meanwhile, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Brian, he's going to come back, and I'm going to rake him over the coals. But he, um, it made me think about... I mean, Patrick wanted to talk with Brian, who is the, you know, the, the spreadsheet cowboy for the Hearst Ranch. And, um, but he wears a cowboy hat all the time. And he's a singing cowboy, too. He's yeah, really he's cute. a good singer. Really cute. And um, so anyway, we were, Patrick was talking about the cork. Did you see the cork? The yes. two cork I segments? I've seen one of the two. Okay, I did not see them, but they can be seen on, on the internet. Um, I haven't watched them yet. What I did was... We're going to have was, the link to that on our weekly email this week. Yeah, cool. And we should... But, but you know, the thing is, is that I, you know, I read these trade blogs for the meat industry. And... Um, Okay, I'm a meat geek, I admit it. And I, you know, it was it was an interesting thing to do because of course the industry is very keen to protect itself. Um, but uh, according to Dr. Richard Carnavale, the veterinarian and vice president regulatory scientific and international affairs health animal health institute in a media conference call on February 11th, he said the segment failed to portray that antibiotics used in livestock are FDA approved and monitored for residues and bacterial resistance. Okay, we know they're FDA approved. Thank you. Um, they undergo, but he goes on to say, they undergo a rigorous approval process and are all subject to surveillance. The implication was that antibiotic resistant bacteria freely flow between people and animals, but there are numerous layers of protection. Bacteria do not fly. And. <laughs> Gotta laugh about that. And cause human infection, despite what the PEW spokesman said in the CBS interview. I am dismayed the FDA commissioner did not discuss this. He also noted that the CBS segment did not differentiate between the methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus, MRSA infections that can occur in people and animals, and uh, they've been recognized as two different strains, hospital acquired, and human have no animal connections. Okay, now that's the key thing, because that is the key argument with people who disagree with the use of antibiotics in livestock. Now, of course, They say there is a connection. They say, some people say there is, and these guys are saying there isn't. Right. And I want to see the science that those guys who say there is, I want to see that science just as I would want to see the science on this side and of the And the table. onus is on the people putting that into question. Who are making they that need accusation, to prove it's okay, Absolutely. not the other. The other I mean, people are fine to bring up the question. You know, I think that these are, this, is a, this is where the media, I think, really does a great disservice to the American public, and that is to go off to, to sensationalize something which... Um, has been evaluated, tested, and... But I admire Katie Couric. By bringing by up going the issue into that, and putting it in I the public eye, agree. she lets the viewer make their own decisions. Well, that's all but, part of us. that's all part of us taking back control of our food chain, which when we accepted convenience foods as the norm in this country, this is, this is where I think it all went downhill, is when we accepted convenience foods like TV dinners as the norm... I saw that! He's like... <laughs> I was winking at your sister. I know. Because <laughs> she was probably rolling her eyeballs. <laughs> you were. She well, Katie, was. I would say, well, I, I think I admire Katie Kirk for doing that. And I would say that, that the big guys who feed the nation, you know, whoever those big players are, they could do a little better. Just like exactly. everyone else is trying to do a little better, they could go less on the antibiotics, they could increase the amount of space the animals have. That's all that I think our 
Well, they could probably really increase for. the space and then they could cut back on the antibiotics because they wouldn't yeah. need so many antibiotics if the animals weren't so crowded. And so, I think that you know, the corporate where dining chefs... are they going to get the space? They're going to get it from vertical farming. Because when we stop growing our crops on plains and start growing them in vertical towers, then we open up more range for animals to feed. And I mean, I think the dictates should come from Aramark, Sodexo. They should say we want 5% of our supply to be no antibiotics, pasture-raised. Or 2%. Doing that already. By the way, 1% would be enough. Really? But yeah. it's a mandate? No, it is not a mandate. And actually, it would be worth doing some information. Because they're the ones that would force the supply to change you know as long as well, yeah, they're they have the big institutional contracts you guys are like <laughs> and i would say they can do it a hundred <laughs> they don't have to do it a hundred percent of the time but they also can't do it zero percent right zero is ridiculous that's not even one percent well know? i think the, you know to go back it's like take control of your food like where are you getting your food from you know, if you don't like where you're getting it from, stop buying it there. Buy it somewhere else. And you can still eat cheaply. And I kind of think that Aramark and Sodexo should remember their, their hippocratic well, you oath to, sell to, to gastronomy. Aramark and Sodexo. They're so gastronomes. You, think that. you know, those are chefs, you know, and they have to consider gastronomy a little bit, not just economics. Is there a Hippocratic oath for chefs? Absolutely not. No? No. There's yeah, but... No. Who goes into the... Well, no, that's actually not true. I've, I've worked with chefs who were like even CIA trained. I'll never forget these two guys. Pat and Pasquale. No, it was, it was, oh, it was Pat and Paulie Ingenito. Mm-hmm. And they were these two guys. They'd gone to CIA. They were brothers, both redheads, completely crazy. And they didn't give a shit about the food. They were only interested in performing it as a completely, you know, utilitarian function. I mean, everything about it was like so utilitarian. And they would blanch off, you know, the racks of lamb halfway and leave them on top of the of the convection oven for three hours, and then come back and fire them for service. And you know, they made these. They did make an interesting stock. They made a very good stock. They were serious about that. But the rest of it, it was garbage. It was garbage. So there's like there were generations of people who were exactly like these two guys. Oh, absolutely, so, they're still and, there, and they are still there. And those are the guys who do the institutional. My point is that they're the ones who do the institutional cooking. They're techs. It's like you know, if you work in the school system, you don't even they don't even cook anymore. Right, there. but yeah, there's That's no the there's deal. no devotion or even the mention. There's no pride of, in the product. It's just getting through the paces. Yeah, but I mean, there's no there's no notion of wholesomeness, and I think that. You know, it's it's somehow become our God-given right as Americans to eat the crap we think we want, um, regardless of the consequence. And that anybody that tries to interfere with that is both messing with industry and, and your theoretical right as a consumer to choose. Right. I mean, Patrick, when you were saying, you know, Katie Couric going out there and giving this report helps allow viewers to make up their own mind. The problem is there's no minds to be made up. They don't have enough information about anything to actually make an informed decision. Um, and they don't. They're going to, well, oh, okay, I well, guess I don't we don't want this I anymore. completely agree with that. But I, mean, I, think, I think you can make, is you can wise. sell anything. You know, if, if no. you want to make no antibiotic meat fashionable... You can make it fashionable. And it has become fashionable. Yeah. And as one of the things, I mean, I didn't read to you from these papers that I got, but for instance, the Danish abolished several different kinds of antibiotics that had been sort of like not prophylactically given like on a daily basis, but at particular periods of time in an animal's life, however short it may be, when they are particularly 
you vulnerable. know, vulnerable to infection. Okay, so, um, you know, the Danes abolished all of these. They did not see a significant difference in the number of humans who were then less resistant to antibiotics yeah. or, you know, diseases that passed into the, or even into the remainder of the pig population in the sense, in the case of the Danes. So it's it's not sh- clear that not using any antibiotics is necessarily a good thing. In fact, uh, their statistics went up in terms of having to spend more money f- to treat like on the spot, which allowed more product to get into the food chain that was infected with, say, salmonella. So yeah. I mean, you know, so, you scream um, and cry about antibiotics, but it's at the same time, it's like you got a way that these the, be, the conditions being what they are in where these animals are grown, you're going to see a lot of infection. Yeah, Jimmy, and do you try so to go? Do you have a no antibiotic policy uh, for the proteins you buy at Jimmy's Forty Three? That's a good question. <clears throat> um, we don't really know enough about that. I mean, the more that we talk to farmers, um, we hope to be buying animals that they've raised in, in, a, in a more natural environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they're using antibiotics or not. I think I've never the, asked issue, that question, um, the issue is the preventive, because when an animal's sick, it needs antibiotics. But the preventive measure of presuming they're sick is like addicting a child well, to... Well, also, they use some know, antibiotics to promote growth, and those, I think, should be abolished. Um, well, the other ones are to prevent specific infections, either uh, prophylactically or in the moment. I mean, Heritage Foods has a new uh, web design and yeah. uh, information flyer, and we say that the three real things are pasture, yeah. no antibiotics, and the final thing is the, the genetics that evolved naturally rather than from laboratories designed for meat production and fast growth. Uh-huh. Those are the three things. Like if you get pasture, no antibiotics, and decent genetics, but you're saying that's no the antibiotics trifecta. even if the animal is it's the sick. holy grail or whatever, the father, son, and the holy ghost. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying, but you're saying no antibiotics in the context of even if they're sick. No, if they're sick, yes. Then okay, but then they come out of the program for heritage and they go into commodity B for whatever. I think there's that's just a, a number of, of days do. that they can't. It can't be within ninety days of the slaughter or something like that. But I we'll see. add an mm-hmm. asterisk for you. But actually, uh, yeah. <laughs> You do that. Jack, did you take a note? <laughs> nice. From my own co-host. Can I say my favorite chef is well, sitting right here? That's an interesting question. Oh. <clears throat> when he, when he, uh, Colin had the tasting room in New York, mm-hmm. he was my favorite chef. Yeah, yeah Patrick was yodeling your praises, too. Yeah. You must have been pretty damn good. But, it's interesting um, that you made that fun. segue. What pushed you over the edge, like to get away from the food and into the beverage? I know we well, talked about your transition, but... Like, well, I've always really been involved in beverage, you? and once I closed my own restaurant um i realized i couldn't cook in somebody else's kitchen ah, but i could do beverage for service for oh yeah um and i bet you're having more fun and work less hours <laughs> and get paid more <laughs> no 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 <laughs> well yeah we're working on it we're getting there um and i get to dress better that's for i'm sure. telling you honey you should um, see this guy he is but hot. Um, you know it's it's bringing that love of food and beverage you know yeah. back and i mean when we had the tasting room we were we were very cognizant of trying to be responsible about our sources um as well as being pragmatic about where we were i mean the irony of being a local organic um you know let's say environmentally responsible restaurant in the middle of manhattan yeah um is already like really like yeah. what? I agree. Like we're in I such mean, a manufactured environment. I mean, all we're trying to do is not increase our manufactured lifestyle out to the countryside. Yeah. You know? But I mean, 
we're in the most man-made place you can find. Exactly. I mean, in a in a neighborhood that has historically um, been one of the most savagely brutal places mm. um, to live until we, you know, helped reinvent that for the third world mm-hmm. and export it. But certainly, you know, the Lower East Side um, in New York for a long, long time was probably the most, I mean, talk about being oh, yeah. raised in confinement um, yeah. and the need for antibiotics. Yeah. Um, oh the God, Lower East so Side true. was certainly... What a very good example. What a great yeah. analogy to draw. Yeah. You know, we were And we were just animals. down in the Lower East Side yesterday. So, we saw, we walked down Orchard Street. We saw, we didn't go into the Tenement Museum. It was really crowded. But the but then there was a tenement that was the first recorded tenement on the National Historic Registry and, you know, like sort of what yeah. that meant. And so, Colin, do you go to Jimmy's 43? I do. Yeah. I've had some many gone. excellent beers there. Yeah. And um, they have uh, more ability to store beer there than most other places do, which like gives you a, an advantage on the taste side, right? Yeah, we have re- really big walk-in refrigerators. Mm-hmm. One with kegs and one with bottles. Cool. Yeah, it's cool. awesome. And you guys have that whole like you know downstairs kind of vibe anyway. Yeah, Rat Skeller, you know, yeah. basement yeah, bar. Yeah, basement bar. And yeah. uh, we couldn't have Brian Kenny on today, but I think he would be a, a great performer. Kind of, he's a very spoken word cowboy. He'll create the cool. backup and oh, talk he's about my singing the room cowboy. I love that guy. It's a, a real lost art form. That you guys, you know, I, I think it's time to wrap it up here. We, we've oh. hit two o'clock, right? Awesome. Well, this is great. I think this must might Thanks have been the best by, main Jimmy. course ever. Great to see yeah, you, man. Nice to see I, you, love, man. I, love, I love Heritage Radio Network. Now, you're going to stay on um, two things. Uh, you're going to stay on for Cutting the Curd next. There's a big group of you. Who's on? Uh, we got Claire Harton, who's uh, been very active. In, uh, she was in a design researcher, and there's a group called Dirt Cafe, which oh. she was a big part of in London oh, for yeah. five years. Yeah, a mix yeah. of food and science people. And they get together and talk, kind of like this. How fun! But with the idea of uh, reaching boring. new creations and and you know mind, you know Vulcan mind, you know melding. Yeah, mind melding. I between like that. different, uh, you know, or industries. not mind sparking, but something yeah. happening. You know, like that's what's fun. And that's now, what it's all about. Are the about. rumors true that you're considering doing a show on <gasps> HRN? Well, <gasps> when I was on with you guys last month, I, I so liked the it, we talked the a little vibe. bit about the beer thing, right? and uh, I would love to do a beer show. Oh, no, I will bring people to you that have never been here before. Oh, that'd be great. That's that'd awesome. Great. Yeah, we, yeah. Luckily, one of the great, uh, the Union Beer, which is a distributor, they're just down the road in yeah. Bushwick. Um, they're planning to send all their brewers here every week for the radio show. Because oh, they, have, they have brewers coming through every week, and yeah. we're not too far from uh, their that's headquarters. Right. Oh, that's right. Go Robert Hodson. Robert Hodson is what a great guy. What group is this? Well, it's called Union Beer. They're uh, one of the distributors. There's several big distributors uh-huh. in the city. But there's a gentleman named Robert Hodson who got his start in uh, at Brooklyn Brewery in the old Craft Brewers Guild. Mm-hmm. And he's he's been, for close to 20 years, been handling with all the great either local American craft and European uh, you know specialty beers, like Chimay or Allagash. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, he's a guy that kind of works with them and, and, and handles the, the brewers and the importers. And uh, he probably knows more about beer than anyone else in the city. Yeah, cool. absolutely. He was wow, uh, instrumental in yeah. uh, me developing my own beer program. But what he'll oh, yeah? be doing is, is right? yeah, yeah, he'll be uh, cool. he helps uh, DBGB. Yeah, I mean, DBGB has a pretty much a carbon copy of Jimmy's beer list. At least nice. their first one. Exactly, <laughs> ripped him off straight. He's got an <laughs> ambitious young uh, between Jimmy's forty three and beer table. Taste, I was pretty much talk done. about cheating. Had yeah. cut and pasted, and was like, here we go. But we all are yeah. good beer list to Robert Hodson. Yeah. So he's going to be supplying. Wow, uh, when we guys. get the beer show started, he's going to be supplying hopefully a brewer every show. 
from all over the that world. That is fabulous. Boy, that's a great development, Patrick. That's very it's exciting. Cool. Yeah, totally. Thank Cosmic. you. Now, can I ask, how do French people say DBGB? DBGB. Yeah, they don't. They don't say DBGB. No. They try. Yeah. DBGB. Um, oui. I wonder what the standard sense. is when it's just pure letters like that. Do you try to do it? You know, in the. Well, it's. I mean, it's definitely a more American influenced place. And the name really came out. It was kind of a joke. Yep. Um, when the when the idea for the restaurant and that location became available, they needed a working title. Um, and one of our uh, uh, people, uh, a guy by the name of Brett Trucy, um, who's a big Ramones fan, um, said, oh, we'll call it DBGB, being down the street from the old right. CB space, which was already, like, out. Um, and then somehow, I believe it wound up on, like, Eater dot com right as like this is the name and everybody was horrified and then somehow it just kind of stuck um and i think it's uh you know it works it's actually got a really nice vibe that place yeah i mm. like it mm. i i liked it a lot i thought it was really for a for a really big re- how many seats are in that restaurant it's, it's uh, close to 200 seats yeah it's it's a lot of space a lot of and territory i can say you know we've had uh you know both marky ramon and david byrne in oh really? Multiple times. Yeah. So I figure cool. They're probably spending more time with us than they are at the John Varvato store, which is in the old CBGB. <laughs> so I figure, like, this is where they go now. Yeah. So right, they're they're just inexorably drawn to that kind of phoneme. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's exactly. good that DBGB has embraced that whole crowd of uh, CBGBs. Uh, just yeah. a seamless yeah. transition, kind from of right. Club to fancy French restaurant. Yeah, as we've exactly. all gotten older. Yeah. No, well, one you know. <laughs> There were big beer hall restaurants on the Bowery 150 years ago. I That's mean, true. it's actually and less now, uh, of an anachronism than you think. Keith McNally's opening up Polino's with mm-hmm. Nate Appleman yeah. as the chef. That's yeah. always been an untouched neighborhood in New York. It's all those kitchen supply companies, places. But yeah, well, but all yeah. those kitchen supply companies are going away. Like when I was shopping, they're for all kitchen criminals. Supplies, You're not missing anything. I don't give a shit. They add something to this. Come on, now wait a minute. If you want to leave old stoves on the street, the it's fine. New York. But if you need restaurant supplies, yeah, they're crooks. Oh, don't I know? Except it. for maybe three of them. Is that why DBGB's moved to that neighborhood just to avoid the the delivery fees of all the equipment? Yes, pretty much. I think so. All right. That's well, on that, on that note. note. On that note, thank you so much, Colin, for joining My us. Pleasure. It was a thrill, yep. Jimmy. Always a treat to see you. And uh, Liz, thank you for joining us in the studio today. Thanks, Liz. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we thought. <laughs> I so. Know